Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. I am uh, outside. I decided to make a podcast outside. And, uh, you know, so you may hear birds and cars and I won't edit them out. I don't really edit my podcast anyway, unless I say something terribly false. Like I'm listening back and think, that's not true. Or that's not what I meant to say. And so occasionally I do some hacking. But for the most part, I I sort of keep it as is, for better or worse. And uh, today's podcast, I want to talk about the third way. I could call it toward a third way or third way consciousness. And why? Because almost nobody's talking like this. Or those people who who are saying something like we need them we need an emergence of a third consciousness, a third way of being in the world, their voices are being drowned out by the poles, by the opposites, by the division and divisions in our uh, society and culture. So in my view, at least, this is something absolutely critical right now to be talking about. And uh, I, might, I might could add a couple things. I've mentioned before that I like to think about the time we're in because I think it's fitting as an apocalyptic age. And, of course, I don't mean like, you know, get bottled water and head to the basement. And I mean something like apocalypse in its original intent, which means to reveal. There are times where the dominant consciousness or way of being or way of life is so untenable, so unworkable that uh, the masks of society are torn off and the underbelly is exposed, the underworld, uh, the unconscious, uh, what we don't like to see, Um, our own hypocrisies and illusions start to come out from the basement and it wreaks havoc on society. And we desperately want to cling to our fantasies and illusions. That's an apocalyptic time. It's revealing something. And ultimately, it's revealing something that's true for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. It's revealing the way things really are. And that can be very painful. And we're, we're in one of those ages. And you know, the traditional imagery for apocalyptic times was warfare and famine and earthquakes and, um, and uh, well, warfare is something you can do, some, do something about, I suppose, but, but it's as if the entire earth itself, nature itself, uh, the, the chaos of nature, uh, you, one feels, um, what's the right word for it? One feels at the mercy of the waves of nature and um, the, the fickleness of governments and, um, and leaders. And that's what kind of age we're in right now. And the other thing I might want to say is something I think I mentioned on my last podcast uh, that I got from Michael Mead. And, and he talks about crisis as having a, uh, the meaning as having a medical um, backdrop in Greek. And it means something like turning point. So I think both, both of those things are true. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic age. It's revealing something. And the crisis itself is creating various turning points. I feel that in my own life, just personally, instead of you know, talking so symbolic and, and meta for a, a moment, I feel like I'm at the edge of another turning point, a crisis. Uh, some, and, and it feels something like change your life, change your life. Um, and... And I'm, in, in some ways, in very concrete terms, trying to change my life, trying to change even some of my daily habits and patterns, which is sort of what I was talking a bit about in my last podcast. So it's in that spirit that I think it's important to talk about third-way consciousness, now more than ever. What imaginative third-way might emerge in the midst of an incredibly polarizing um, political, religious, social, economic, and racial environment. And in some ways, I'm, I'm trusting the saints and mystics and 
shamans and spiritual teachers who have come before us who laid the groundwork for uh, third-way consciousness, meaning, meaning it exists, <laughs> and found in their own ages a kind of third way of being. I'm trusting that there's some profound and eternal truth to this that's needed now more than ever. So that's kind of where I'm going, and I hope you'll hang with me in this podcast, and I hope to, by the end, offer some, some practical things that we can do. And if, you're, if you've listened to my teachings at C3, which I do on Facebook, where I teach here in Grand Haven, um, you know, I, I've been talking actually about the third way the last couple of weeks. So it's something that I've been mulling over and wrestling with and feeling a desire to, to throw into the cauldron. And I hope you hear a hint or a guess that um, is inspiring or challenging or both. Uh, over the course of the next little bit here. Um, I want to thank my Patreon supporters. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, said for a long time, dude, you got to get on Patreon. I was like, I don't know. I just want my podcast to be free. He's like, your podcast is free already, so keep it free. Get on Patreon because some people might want to support you. And I was like, I don't know. And, And so I sort of just slipped it in there. And I'm feeling extremely grateful for my Patreon supporters. So I want to thank you personally, very much. And I couldn't make this podcast without you. Yes, the podcast is free, but it's not free to me. You know, it still costs me something to make. And you help help make it happen. And I also really appreciate the feedback that I get um, through the Patreon uh, site. Uh, little comments and questions and observations. And I often feel like they work me and challenge me. And inspire me to keep going. So I really, really want to thank you. I also promised, on on a a kind of a whim, if I get 50 patrons, I'll make an audio book oriented uh, toward a conversation around Jesus or Christ as symbol. Um, And I reached 50 patrons. I'm like, oh, I got to make this thing. So I want to be a person of my word, and I'm I'm starting to outline what this uh, little audio book, it'll be short, but it'll be longer than a podcast. And so I'll make that available to my Patreon supporters. So uh, again, I just can't thank you enough. I appreciate it. Um, Sometimes I think about Patreon as like a tip jar. (laughs) Like I'm I'm out at a, back when I used to be in a band, um, playing a gig and you put a little tip jar there in the front. And so um, I just want to say thanks. Okay. uh, Third way consciousness. So I want to begin with a quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh. I think Thich Nhat Hanh is, uh, is a teacher who is committed to and who has recovered and discovered a third way in the modern era and is compassionately and sort of directly inviting all of us, regardless of race, uh, religion, uh, socioeconomic class into the into Buddhism's great gifts, and one of those gifts um, is what we might call a third way. And but make no mistake, third way is not a Buddhist idea. In fact, you can find it all over the place. You find it in the teachings of Jesus, hidden in the Hebrew Bible. You find it in saints and mystics and shamans and gurus and elders and wise men and wise women all over the place. The possibility of the third, the possibility that that maybe the world can't be divided up quite so easily. So, um, oh well, just to the quote at hand. I, like I said, I want to begin with a Thich Nhat Hanh quote here. Here's what he says. We are here to awaken from the illusion of separateness. We are here to awaken from the illusion of separateness. This is Thich Nhat Hanh's, you know, when I used to teach high school, inevitably, you know, class would be winding down. Any questions from today? You know, some kid in the back. Uh, What's the meaning of life? Well, here's Thich Nhat Hanh's answer to awaken from the illusion of separateness. That's the meaning of life. 
That's the, the great trans-religious, trans-personal, uh, um, trans-spiritual, you could say, invitation to awaken from the illusion of separateness. And actually, separateness is a great gift on the one hand. That's the emergence of the ego. That's one of the things that makes us wildly and uniquely human and is part of our contribution, that we can actually divide the world up and we can see categories. And there is a measure of separateness. Any a two-year-old, three-year-old is beginning to emerge into the world of ego and separateness that um, all is not one. There is an I and there is an other. There is a you. But ultimately, I think what Thich Nhat Hanh is getting at is that kind of separateness, as much of a gift as it can be to the dawning or awakening of consciousness, also is a great limiter over time. And is in fact a kind of illusion that we are far, far more connected than we ever thought possible, than our, than our early expressions of consciousness ever, ever thought possible. And so how far out do you want to extend this? Um, how many illusions of separateness are you carrying right now between you and the natural world, between you and the other, between you and your uncle who votes a different way than you vote. These are ultimately illusions. And the path, the great path, is to awaken to the realization of our deeply interconnected nature, our interconnected and interdependent reality. And that's, of course, true on the scientific, molecular, quantum physics level, and it's true on the level of the spiritual. So um, I wanted to start with that quotation because you might say, why, why um, hold out for the emergence of a third? Because it helps us to awaken to this reality that we're not as separate as we thought. So here's uh, my definition. I thought I'd start with a definition of what I mean by third way. Holding the tension of opposites long enough for a third to emerge. That's my definition of the third way. Holding the tension of opposites long enough for a third to emerge. And you already can get a sense for how different that kind of invitation is in our present cultural climate. Who is out there holding the tension of the opposites? or holding on to tension long enough for some kind of third awakening to happen. No, we divide, we separate, we hunker down, we back other people into a corner, or we're backed into a corner, and we draw lines in the sand, whatever. Whatever kind of image you want to use, we are actually obsessed right now with separateness and with poles, with opposites. And we've associated those opposites with another kind of opposite, which is good and evil. I'm on the good side and you're on the evil side. And if you could be eradicated or eliminated or shipped off somewhere, uh, then the truth would emerge. And my way of uh, uh, viewing the world, my worldview would, would remain victorious over your way of looking at things, your way of being. And that's just not helping because life is filled with opposites. The opposites are never, ever resolved in any kind of final way. It's love and suffering, both. It's um, the eternal and the temporal, both, always. We always live with the reality of 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 eternity itself and the timeless expanse and we live with our incredible impermanence. It's both. It's not one over the other. But we tend not to apply that in any kind of concrete way to our boss and our neighbor and whatever. So, I mean, this is my point number one. We're living with the illusion of separateness. 
black and white and rich and poor and nature and human and male and female and urban and rural and left and right and good and evil, which we overlay on all these categories, we're living with the illusion of separateness. And that's what ideology thrives on. It's the diesel fuel of ideology and and of identity and of identity politics. And I was going to say, uh, forgive the wind, but no, this is just the way it is. Um, Everything is a mixture. And everything is interconnected. So I think we have to begin by feeling the challenge of such a thing as a form of, as a, form of a question. Do I want to remain uh, convinced of our separateness? Do I, I want to remain in my own illusions? Uh, you, can, you, can, you can put that on your tombstone. I held on to my illusions. Is that what you want? Is that what any of us want? I remained blind, in other words. No, we don't want that. If we have false beliefs and false ideas, what do the Buddhists always say? Wrong thinking, or what do they call it? Um, I I actually can't think of the phrase. It's something like wrong thinking um, that all of us have. Do we want to remain in that small world or not? Or do we want to awaken? And I think all of us, it's probably part of, of the, the glory of our, of our innate humanness that we want to grow, we want to awaken. At least one part of us does. Maybe, maybe it's the soul that comes knocking on the door one day and says, would you like to give up all your illusions? And one part of us says yes, and the other part of us, our persona, our mask, our face, and our own ego says, hell no, I'm not giving that up. I've worked too hard to, um, I've, worked, I've worked too hard to promote this, the illusion of who I am. So, I don't know, what's, what would it look like to stand with a kind of humility around this and say, what illusions am I holding on to about myself in the world and about my rightness and someone else's wrongness, that sort of thing. That's point number one. Point number two, let's have a little conversation about postmodernism, something I like to pick on occasionally in the, in the podcast, and I'll pick on modernism equally, I suppose. Um, oh, let's start with modernism. I'm going to be, this is a drive-through version of, of, you know, this is a 101 kind of thing I'm talking about here, but Modernism's great gift is in its scientific and rational approach to things, to life. Um, it's the scientific method. It's the weeding out. It's um, hypotheses and and um, and uh, and tenets, um, premises, and conclusions. And it's one of the great gifts. It's why I'm making a podcast right now. It's it's why we have had such massive technological advances in a hundred years and in 500 years and in the last 10 years, it's absolutely incredible. We have modernism to thank for such a thing and the, the capacity to as far as we can and are able to set aside biases and emotions and look at facts and statistics. One of modernism's great gifts and it has a dark side, of course. And one of its dark sides is that there's a kind of blind certainty that comes with, quote, facts and with too strong of a modernist perspective. Not only, not only is there absolute truth, I can know it. And that's that kind of, there's a kind of fundamentalism with, with um, the modernist point of view that rivals the, you know, the strongest Christian fundamentalist group that you know of. So, um, and, and with postmodernism, of, of course, it's the, it's the dismantling of this modern worldview. And here's postmodernism, postmodernism's great gift, which is there's such thing as perspective and bias. And nobody, nobody has a clean enough lens that every point of view is a point from a particular view. 
and nobody gets out of that. So it tends to say, okay, there's no such thing then as absolute truth, or at the very least, you could say there's no such thing that I will absolutely know what that is. That's probably the best way of saying it. And what is it? It's great blind spot. It tends to flatten everything out to the point where you end up saying something like, nothing is true. There's no such thing as truth. Actually, there's no such thing as meaning. And that's the cul-de-sac of nihilism and narcissism, which I brought up before. It's a, it's a line I got from Ken Wilber. And so what are you left with? Well, there is no meaning or I guess all I can do is just serve myself. And that's the great cul-de-sac, the postmodern cul-de-sac. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's ironies are quite easy to see. You know, to say something like uh, there is no absolute truth is, a, is, is an absolute claim. So you can't make such a claim. It collapses in on itself. So I think um, I'm mentioning that because I don't want you to confuse third way thinking with just kind of general relativism. Hey, you've got your point of view. I've got mine. Um, you know, as long as you don't sort of tread on my my life or lifestyle, then we can just kind of call it good and or good enough that's not third way. That's not really honoring, listening for the truth of the pole of the opposite side. Here's another way of saying it. Nobody is smart enough to be 100% right, and nobody is smart enough to be 100% wrong. And so we have some responsibility to open up our perspective to the confrontation that comes with the other, any other without giving up our particular post or our point of view. And this is um, maybe bears repeating. So one option is to say, you've got your point of view, I've got mine, I don't really know if mine's really valid, and you give it up. No, that's not going to allow for the, uh, the emergence of the third. It's something like hold your post humbly. Hold your post, but hold it humbly, because you're probably wrong to a certain extent. And you're not going to see sort of your own illusions unless you hold your own post humbly. And that also requires a certain capacity to open up your listening ear to the experience of the other. To the truths that the other is trying to express even beneath their particular words. So... That's my second point. We're not talking about relativism. Um, in any way, it doesn't really work. And you know it doesn't work. And I think this is one of the funny things about sort of liberalism right now is that it's kind of um, uh, resistance to words like truth backfire. Because who would say, well, you know, it's just... It's that white cop's perspective that he, you know, and it, that's his truth that he leaned on the neck of a black man for eight minutes. And we don't want to take away his truth. Uh, he's, I mean, who am I to criticize? You know, I don't, I don't know his world. And is my world any better than his? Nobody's talking like that. Nobody's talking, and nobody should talk like that. That's absurd. But that's the kind of trap we can, um, we've laid for ourselves with too much emphasis on, um, on annihilating words like truth. <laughs> so it's backfiring, we could say. Um, okay, point number three. And here's where I think think things get interesting. Point number three is, comes from Jung. He says, a healthy psyche is a democracy. Healthy psyche is a democracy. What's he mean by that? I think he means something like this, that the inner landscape that converses with itself, with its own poles, with its own capacity for good and its own capacity for evil, for its own lust and greed and anger and fear and its own love and self-sacrifice and um, freedom 
the psyche that does not have a kind of open dialogue with the complexities of the inner landscape is very unhealthy. It splits, it divides, it separates, it shames, and it represses. That's the unhealthy psyche. There's um, uh, a Jungian analyst named Donald Kalshed. I, I heard an interview with him on the podcast Speaking of Jung, um, which is like a podcast for fans of Jung. <laughs> so um, anyway, he says, he says the, um, the unhealthy psyche is dissociative. And he goes on and he says, and the unhealthy, an unhealthy culture is also dissociative. And that's what's winning out right now. And I'll have more to say that about that in a second. But so if the inner landscape is a democracy and if you're going to grow up, that means you have to begin an ongoing and serious spiritual searching spiritual inventory, which I've said before, searching moral inventory and begin to um, integrate these parts of yourself that uh, you know very little about or that have been repressed or denied or separated or dissociated from. And and, and maybe I should say something else about dissociation because uh, if we could speak very generally as to how it happens in the psyche, it happens as a result of trauma. And all of us have experienced different levels of trauma. So, and that's part of growing up because you don't have the psychological resources as a child to, to, um, to handle in a healthy way the complexities of life. So... There are certain safety mechanisms that fire off, that protect us. These are our coping strategies, we could say. And one of them is to, to dissociate, to not remember, for example, or to, um, if, if, if showing emotion in your family was completely off limits and totally unsafe to your psychologically young self, then you uh, learn to dissociate from that kind of emotion. Let's pick one, like anger or, um, or whatever. You just stick with anger. If that's off limits, into the basement it goes. And you could say, well, why? Because it helps us survive. It's completely unsafe uh, in the world of our childhood to, for these parts of ourselves to be known and be expressed. So into the underground they go. That's dissociative. This is why you need a good therapist, um, good spiritual teachers, to help create a dialogue between your ego, who you think you are, and these parts of yourself that have been cut off and denied and repressed. Because if you don't begin a conversation, they leak out sideways. They leak out sideways. And... Um, and more than that, these parts of ourself that we can't own, we put on other people. This is why Donald Trump can say with a completely straight face that Ted Cruz is a liar. <laughs> Lying Ted or Lion Ted. Uh, he can say that because of his own dissociative tendencies. He probably, I'm totally guessing 100% right now, doesn't see the ironies of what he's saying. He can't own the fact that everything comes out of his mouth out of his mouth is a lie, or some percentage of. 90% of what comes out of his mouth is a lie. He can't own that, so he needs to find that kind of lying and put it on somebody else. That's a psyche that's not in conversation with itself. And that is a very humbling place to be in, in, in the sense of when you're in conversation with yourself. Saying, yep, yep, um... I'm selfish and greedy and, and also talented <laughs> and filled with a kind of genius. That's actually a humble psyche that can be in conversation with both the complexities of landscape. So I hope you get what I'm saying. The healthy psyche is a democracy. So we can turn that around and say the healthy collective is also a democracy. If it's true on the inside, it's true on the outside. And this is why I think it's so powerful about this idea. And I, I have to thank Donald Kalshed for, for turning me on to this idea in such a new and fresh way that the, uh, an unhealthy culture is dissociative. It separates, it divides between right and left. And worse than that, it says you have no place here at the table. And worse than that, it wants to um, 
completely get rid of. Scapegoat, push off the edge of the cliff, I hope you never see. I hope I never see you again. That's the psychological tendency, and that's what's happening in our culture. That's why I think many of us must be standing up and saying, the division between the right and the left is an illusion. It's not that there, ide- there, that there aren't ideas that are better or worse. There are ideas that are better and there are ideas that are worse. There are ideas and ideologies and, and, and political um, and economic structures that can cause more suffering and there are, there are some that can cause less suffering. But in order to have that conversation We need to live in a healthy democracy and say, I don't like you (laughs) or your ideas, but you have a seat at this table and the way we work things out is being in conversation. But right now we have this kind of stupid um, political uh, kind of um, vibe that I won't even talk to the other side. I won't negotiate. And we see that, yeah, that person's standing up for what they won't even talk to so-and-so. That's just blind stupidity. That's a dissociative culture gone pathological. And what I'm suggesting is something like, no, not helpful. And maybe you can even, you can even see where I'm going. Unless you do the inner work, you're not going to um, engage in a healthy democracy in the external. And so you can, we can even say collectively, how do we get into this place? Because we're not very healthy. We're not very healthy. We have dissociated. And part of what I think is so interesting about the racial um, fire that's happening right now is, is that this is not new, friends. Racism in America is not new. <laughs> Racism is in, Amer- in America is the fabric of America. And But what feels kind of new right now is that we've been living under the illusion that we don't have a problem with it. We've separated ourselves from our own history. That's not me, we would say. I didn't own any slaves, we would say. And that's that, um, from a cultural point of view, dissociated tendency and say that's, that has nothing to do with me, which means then it just lurks underground and comes, um, comes out like a lion wreaking havoc. So uh, a society that's growing in health in that respect is one that says, I got to own this, my racism, um, my um, privilege, my whatever, you fill in the blank, and you own it. And we have to learn to own our own histories in that sense. And history is complicated, of course. And that's probably what's kind of stupid about the how the right and the left use history differently. They both act as if it's not complicated. It's wildly complicated. Every single historical figure doesn't get off the hook. They all have shadows. They all have demons. They all have a dark side because that is true of all of us. So this idea that I can, you know, cancel out so and such and such a historical figure, that's dissociative. That's not a healthy democracy. That's not a healthy psyche. That's more of the same. That's more separation. No, you don't cancel them out. You integrate. You integrate the complexities, even of our own history. And I got to say something that will probably get me in trouble. I'm not that excited by pushing monuments into rivers, you know, because that's that the tendency there is if I can get this out of sight, it'll be out of mind. But that's not the way it works. The monument itself is a testimony to our own illusions. How have we gotten our own story wrong? What might be more helpful, speaking of third way, is instead of saying, if I could get rid of all of the negative monuments in America, we'd be pure. Say, let them all stand, and maybe next to them, let's build a monument that speaks to the other pole. See, that creates the possibility of some third thing, rather than this or that. You know, I was listening to um, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast not that long ago, and he's interviewing a, uh, a professor from the Pacific Northwest, like Oregon. I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. But they were talking about politics, and he said, how about this for an idea? Let's have a Democrat and a Republican run together. He actually had names. He named names. But he said, let's have a centrist Democrat and a centrist Republican run together on the same ticket. And they will commit to making every single decision together as a team for four years. Every single one. 
except if there is an impasse, then it falls to the president, as it should be. This is basically just following the present structure of our democracy, but changing it up. And then he says, now here's the catch. After four years, they switch. The Republican, you know, president becomes the Republican vice president. The Democratic vice president becomes the Democratic president. I mean, talk about, talk about knowing that the decisions that you make um, as a Republican or as a Democrat, you are subject to the swapping of roles in simply four years, of which you will also be a participant. Now, that's some radical, and I think that's actually an expression, a political expression of a third way. It's saying it's not about getting rid of. I mean, what do you think? That eventually America will have no conservatives? Is that, that, is that really what you think? That, that, they'll, that you'll win and drive everybody, you know, to the sea? No, that's not going to happen. Or the other way around. You think you're going to get rid of the liberal progressive dimension of America? Just a matter of time? Just enough changing of the laws? and pe- No. That's never, ever going to happen because one of the things we know about the human brain is that the, the, the way the human, the human brain reacts to stimuli can look like the capacity to conserve and protect um, or the capacity to progress and innovate. These reactive stances are also just part of human anatomy, we could say. So it's never going to go away what we might call traditional or what we might call progressive or what we might call the left, what we might call the right. So we better learn to live with it, better learn to live in a democracy. And if you think about it, the greater the democracy is, the more seats we make at the table and the more we enter into the complex dialogue of living together, the easier it is for our psyches to heal, to heal our own inner wounds. But the less healthy the the cultural climate is, the more dissociative it is, the more separate it is, the more divisive it is, then the more our own inner landscape tends to look the same. It's like, it's like, uh, like attracts like. And suddenly I find myself, you know, one day I'm all into inclusion, using words like that. The next day I'm excluding everybody that I don't think fits into my ideology. You know, well, why is this? It's, it's, it's in part because I'm backed into this fearful corner. The cultural uh, temperature um, gets raised, which raises my own cultural ten- uh, temperature, and I get into that fight-or-flight mode. So what I'm saying is complex. <laughs> and um, what else can I say here? I made some notes. I want to look at them for just a second. Um, oh, yeah, just to give you some more examples of... Th- what I'm calling here the dissociative tendencies, you know, a, a real depth psychologist might say I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not quite using it technically. And I'd say, OK, I, I admit I'm using it as a kind of uh, metaphor, or picture, or symbol here. So um, here are ways that, that it comes out in sort of common ways. I'm not greedy. Corporations are greedy. So I'm not greedy. Corporations are greedy. And corporations are evil because of their greed. You know, unless you're willing to say, actually, damn it. I am greedy, and the corporation is a reflection of my own greed, then you're never going to get beyond the divisive way of operating. Here's another one. Um, I'm inclusive. I'm totally inclusive. I'm committed to inclusivity. Hashtag not my president. You know, you can see it right away. You're like, oh my God, of course. I'm all about law and order. We must have law and order. Law and order, a society without law and order completely collapses. Yes, 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 law and order. On the other hand, no one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do, especially the government. Now, how can those, because I'm, as you know, those two things come out of the mouth of the same person. Same with I'm inclusive, hashtag not my president. You know, yeah. Listen to Jesus. Unless you take the plank out of your own eye, you cannot see clearly to take the speck of dust out of your brother or sister's eye. Take the plank out of your own eye. This requires a long, hard look in the mirror. 
Here are some other ones. No bailouts whatsoever. No government should ever be bailing out anybody. Where's my money? You know, but this is different. You know, I need my money. How about socialism is evil? Um, where's my social security check? You know, the, it's like, well, what are we, what are we even talking about at a certain point? So, I mean, those are just some uh, relatively obvious hypocrisies. And the way to heal a, a hypocrisy that, like that is to do some inner work and say, um, like, let's take inclusivity. Another way of putting it, a more positive way of putting it, is actually I, invalue, I value an inclusive uh, society and, and an inclusive culture. And I'm trying in my own way to be inclusive, but I've got a lot to learn. And... And oftentimes, through my own biases and blindness, I don't include people, and that's painful. And I cause suffering. So um, I need some help in this respect. Do you see how just talking like that opens the conversation, opens up the democracy of the psyche, and opens up the culture itself to the possibility of democracy, of conversing? Um, Number four, here's my sort of final point. I'd like to just say as directly as I can that fear works. It works. None of us can rise six inches off the floor and become enlightened beings and escape our primal reactivity. We are animals. We have a limbic brain with its fight, flight, or freeze. Constantly standing with finger on the trigger. At all times, none of us get out of this. So the first thing we have to say is when we are participating in fear, in, um, you know, spreading conspiracy theories on the internet or um, whatever, or subjecting ourselves to fear-based advertising, which it all is at this point, every single political advertisement is completely rooted in fear, we have to say to ourselves, I'm not above this. Um, I'm often governed by and activated by fear. And, and as soon as you allow yourself to feel your own fear, the possibility for empathy begins to arise. Because when you say something like, actually, I'm afraid, and that's a form of suffering, you're able to say, and actually, I can see that so-and-so is afraid. There are moments, and I'm not making this up, when I can see that Donald Trump is terrified. He's a terrified child. And, and in my worst moments, I think, what a terrified child. I'm such a mature and awesome person. In my better moments, it's something like, and I know what that's like. I, too, at times, am a terrified little boy. And that creates the, the, the river of compassion and empathy, which, of course, we need now more than ever. But, it, but the opposite of what's probably, you know, conventional wisdom is needed. And the opposite is you have to go toward your own fears. You have to acknowledge them and embrace them and, and, be, um, and, and feel your own uncomfortability in getting close to them for the bottom to open up into something else. Because if we resist... Um, triumphantly say the thing that I know is that I'm not afraid and so-and-so is, will not get anyone near the possibility of the river of empathy opening up. In other words, we're not able to hold the poles. We're back into a world of separation. Who's afraid? Who's not? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's good? Who's evil? Who will win and who will lose? And that is a lose-lose game. As sadly our American political environment and religious environment to a certain extent um, is obviously revealing in the apocalypse that is the now. So, five quick things. First of all, Thich Nhat Hanh says, how do you get out of it? You practice deep listening. You practice deep listening. And what he means by that is two things. He says, listen in such a way that you allow 
the heart of the other person to empty. Think about that. I'm listening, and my desire is for you to empty your heart. That's a different kind of listening. I, my desire is to allow you the space and the room to empty your heart. And I'd like you to empty your heart. He says that's what deep listening is. He also, he also says that deep listening is the kind of listening that seeks to understand suffering. That seeks to understand suffering. That seeks to say something like, I see that you're in pain, even if you're not using these words, because that can sound patronizing. I see that you're in pain. Tell me about it. Or like Mary Oliver says, tell me about your despair and I will tell you mine. That's, that's a kind of deep listening. All right, what's it like to be you? I mean, we automatically assume, well, this group is suffering and that group is not. That's, again, that divisive world. We have to say everybody is suffering. Back to Buddhism 101, uh, everything is suffering. <laughs> and everyone suffers. And when you listen to, to seek to understand the suffering of the other, you're participating in deep listening. Number two, here's a question that I'm finding challenging. What am I working for rather than against? What am I working for rather than against? See, against energy is the attractive one. Like, F you, even protest energy, burn the place down, um, chant, um, put down, mock, um, demonize and scapegoat. Who am I against? Who am I against? The question um, that's oriented toward the third way says, what can, I, what can I work for? If my speech and my words and my deeds were working toward something good, I'm working for something, it completely changes the energetic dynamic of the thing that you're working toward. It doesn't mean you can't be against things. I'm against racism, but the question is, how am I working for something else? That's the question, rather than how can I make sure everybody knows that I'm against racism? That's why I don't like social justice posts. Hey, guys, I want everybody, I want you all to know that, I've, that I'm putting on this mask that I'm against racism. Now, you might very well be against racism, but the motivation is to make sure everybody knows you're against it. A better question is, what am I working for? What am I working toward? What am I working on? And let that um, be the primary energy. So here's suggestion number three. Make a list of opposites. And make a list of opposites in your own life. Make a list of opposites in our culture right now. And then say something like, what truth is being expressed on either side? And here is a simple way of starting. Let's take tradition and innovation. First of all, I can speak about that completely from an artistic point of view. There's no such thing as innovation without tradition. There's no such thing as a wildly innovative piece of architecture without it being in conversation with tradition. It's meaningless if it's not in conversation with tradition. So tradition and innovation, those two um, metaphors or symbols, they might even be a kind of symbol are always going to be poles. And the tension between the two allows for the third to emerge. If you're all about innovation, don't want anything to do with tradition, it's too one-sided. If you're all about tradition and fear all kinds of innovation, you never move forward. So, um, you know, you can do your own uh, sort of building out from there. The same can be said of these two words, to conserve and to liberate to conserve and to liberate. Is there a time and a place? What truth is needed? What truth is trying to express itself in, in the notion of to conserve? Should we be conserving? Hell yes, we should be conserving. Look at the earth's resources right now. And should we be seeking to liberate? Yes, we should. Look how many things are in bondage. And yet these two things exist as poles, as opposites. And the invitation, and here's again the definition of the third way, to hold the poles long enough for a third to emerge. That I couldn't see before, that you couldn't see before, that we couldn't even imagine before. 
It's in the honoring and in the kind of humble listening to the truth of what the other side has to offer. That's not to say the other side isn't wrong about some things. They are. As much as I'm wrong about certain things. I don't know that I'm wrong. That's why they're called the illusions. <laughs> um, and maybe here's my final point. If you want our culture to be more um, of a democracy, to include more people at the table, and to do the hard and challenging and even painful work of dialoguing and discussing and wrestling with ideas, you're going to have to start with your own inner world. Don't think you can get out of inner work if you want the world to look more like a healthy democracy, if you want this country to look more like, uh, or if, if you want it to look less split and less dissociative, then go on the inner path. They are directly related. And the only thing any of us can take responsibility for, ultimately, is our own inner work. That we can take responsibility for. We can say, I didn't do it. You can put that on your tombstone. I failed to look within. What you can't really take responsibility for is what other people are up to. But you know you can do something about your own kind of inner journey. That's what I got for you today, my friends. Again, hints and guesses. I hope you heard a hint, a guess, a clue, a pointer, a finger pointing to the moon um, in, in something I said or between the lines of something that I said or in the whispering of your own deep self, your own muse. It is a belief of mine that the truth we seek is already within. And all a podcast does at its best is ring the tuning fork and the truth that's within and without begin to vibrate and hum. Um, if you made it this far, it's kind of a long podcast, I think. I've got a class coming up last two weeks of July and uh, first two weeks of August on Sunday afternoons uh, called Unplugged from the Machine. And I just want to talk about uh, ways in which disciplines, um, practices, and... Um, and conversations that can help us unplug from this uh, polarizing machine that we find ourselves in uh, toward a deeper, more uh, life-giving uh, way of being in the world. So if that interests you, if that piques your interest, go to my website, kendobson.com, uh, click under Experiences, and there's a tab um, that says Wild Soul. Those are my programs. I, it's also on the main page, actually, now that I think of it. Um, look for Unplug from the Machine. Click on that. All the information is there. It's a really affordable class. Um, if COVID has created a lot of financial problems for you, you know, let me know that in the apl application. We'll see what we can do. Um, and I'd love to see you in the online Zoom format, having, um, having the kind of conversations that I hope really matter and really can make a difference. So thanks for listening and peace.